Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode nine, composing a rustic tune. Things have been a bit quiet the last couple weeks. The holidays will do that. There are a couple interesting tidbits of note, however. First, Nick Cameron, one of the Rust core developers, wrote an interesting blog post called My Thoughts on Rust in 2016, which I'll link in the show notes. It's his thoughts and guesses, not promises, but it still makes for pretty interesting reading. I think you'll enjoy it, especially if you want a sense of the things to come in the year ahead. The one other pretty big piece of news, though it's a fair ways out yet, is a pair of breaking changes in the language coming in the 1.7 release. Both of those changes have to do with details in the type system, neither of which have we even talked about on the show yet, and both of the changes improve Rust's type system to make it more robust. The Rust compiler started issuing warnings for one of those changes back in 1.4 in October 2015, and those changes will become errors when 1.7 ships on March 3rd. The other set of changes will become warnings with 1.7, and they'll become errors at some later point in time. One of the neat things about this, it's always sad when there are breaking changes, but if we can manage it well, it's not so shabby. And in this case, the Rust team has been able to tell before making the change just how many packages will be affected by it. And they've also been able to inform the package developers and also the people who depend on them via official communication channels of these issues. All of this falls out of the tooling that they've built over the last year, especially a tool called Crater, which runs the compiler over every single package uploaded to crates.io, which, as you may recall, is the official packaging repository for Rust, and Crater then checks what breaks with any given set of changes to the compiler. The upside to this is that we know that as of the 1.5 release, which is the most recent, 96% of the crates which compiled on the 1.0 release still compiled with no changes. That's a big deal for a language still being developed this actively, especially if you compare it to other languages being developed this actively in the same time frame. In any case, keep your eyes out for those changes. They're coming up in March. I'll link the forum announcement, and I'll also link the relevant RFCs in the show notes. Now, let's talk some more about traits. Last week, we talked about both generics and traits, but at a fairly high level. This week, we're going to build on that by getting down into the nitty-gritty of what using them looks like in practice. There's not going to be a lot of test code in the show notes this week, though there is a little. Instead, I'm mostly going to refer to the standard library documentation, because they have a ton of generics and traits in them, and the traits I use in the show notes are drawing heavily on those from the standard library. In fact, a lot of what might feel like core behavior of the language of Rust is actually just standard library functionality implemented in terms of generics and traits, and sometimes given some syntactic sugar that the compiler can tease out to make it easier to write. Let's start by talking about the iterator trait, which is a perfect example of something that provides enormous functionality for the language, but is just a trait. And apart from the aforementioned syntactic sugar that the compiler provides for using it, specifically the for statement syntax, you could write this trait yourself. As an aside, 
if the main ways you've been working at learning Rust are through the Rust book or Rust by example, then you should definitely start digging into the documentation proper for the standard library and the implementations thereof. In many cases, the standard library docs include not only definitions of the specific types and functions and methods defined in a given module, but also great information beyond what you'd find in the more tutorial-style walkthrough in the books. Those documentation pages for traits and modules and so on, just like the show notes pages I use for this podcast, link directly to the underlying source, which means that you can actually see how a lot of the constructs you use every day in Rust are implemented, and that's extremely illuminating. Now, back to Iterator. I'll quote from those documents to start, in fact, from the standard iter module. The heart and soul of this module is the Iterator trait. An iterator has a method, next, which, when called, returns an option item. Next will return some item, as long as there are elements, and once they've all been exhausted, will return none to indicate that iteration is finished. Iterators are also composable, and it's common to chain them together to do more complex forms of processing. There's a lot there, so let's break this description down. First, the module itself, as it says, is built on the iterator trait. There are about 3,700 lines of code in this module. That includes, though, all the documentation. It's a pretty big chunk of Rust's standard library dedicated to implementing and explaining this one trait, though, and for good reason. It's really important. As it turns out, as I mentioned above, that's really helpful as an example for people learning the language, too. If core features of everyday Rust are built out of the underlying machinery this way, then we can come up with our own equally powerful abstractions if we need them. And through the macro system, which we'll talk about next week, we can even get some of our own syntactic sugar around that. This is exactly what's going on in things like the regex module, which takes a number of pieces of core functionality, including those macros, and builds a very sophisticated library out of it. You can see the same thing in any number of the other libraries out there, including Diesel, the SQL tool I've mentioned on previous episodes. More on some of that in future episodes. Back to the iterator module docs, the next thing we heard is a description of one of the basic methods available to anything that implements the iterator trait. All iterators have a next method, and it returns an option. If the iterator still has items in it, it'll be some item. Otherwise, if you've exhausted the iterator, it'll be none. And this same behavior exists whether you're iterating over a vector, a string, a hash map, a linked list, or quite literally any other data type which implements iterator. That includes any that you come up with. And importantly, those types don't have to be quote-unquote collection types like those I mentioned above. To borrow a page from the Rust by Example book, you could implement a Fibonacci number generator in terms of iterator, where next always generates the next value in the sequence. And because it's an infinite sequence, you would actually never return none in that case. You would always return some integer where the integer you returned was the next value in the sequence. Now, beyond next, the iterator trait also defines dozens, and I'm not exaggerating here, literally dozens of other methods. But as we discussed last time, you can supply default implementations for trait methods, and that's exactly what iterator does for everything except next. 
As a result, a great many of Rust's facilities for functional-style programming appear in the iterator module and are, in fact, simply methods implemented on the iterator trait. So if you want to be using map or fold, which is Rust's name for reduce, or any of the other usual suspects from functional programming, iterator is where you do it. Now, the last thing I quoted in that description was the assertion that iterators are composable. And this is precisely why those functional patterns work so well. You can take one kind of iterable and create another one and another. And in each case, you can use the exact same operations on the resulting iterable type. Why? Because all iterable types have those methods defined on them, either from the defaults that the iterator trait itself supplies or with a custom definition which overrides those defaults. So that's great. But where it really becomes powerful is this. If you come up with your own custom data type and it makes sense to iterate over it, you just implement iterator trait on it by supplying a next method and you get all of those default behaviors for free. You can run for loops over your bespoke data type for free. That's amazing. Moreover, if you want to put multiple traits together, you can. You'll see this all over the Rust standard library and for that matter, all over any idiomatic Rust code. Defining a new type, there's a good chance you'll want to implement a bunch of traits for it. The add trait to be able to add two instances of the item together, the drop trait to define custom destructor behavior when the item goes out of scope, equivalence via the partial equal or equivalence traits, depending on what kind of equivalence you have, ordering via the partial ordering or ordering trait, depending on what kind of ordering your set supports. You get the idea. And this takes us back to something we talked about in previous episodes, but which I skipped over for the sake of time and because we hadn't talked about traits yet. Rust also provides tools for implementing some of those more common traits automatically. If you think back to our discussion of attributes in episode 7, you'll recall that I mentioned being able to derive the debug attribute. Well, what's actually going on there is that debug is a trait, and the Rust compiler is smart enough to know what a normal debug representation of many data types is, so we can get that for free instead of going through the painful tedium of implementing that trait over and over and over again. In fact, many built-in traits can be derived this way, which lets you create quite sophisticated behaviors around your custom types without needing to do the heavy lifting yourself, except for the places where your type differs from that baseline. In short, we get some really powerful abstractions, which let us create really sophisticated behaviors around even complex custom data types just by composing different traits together. But we're not paying a cost at runtime for that, it all comes at compile time. That's pretty neat if you ask me. Let's take a step sideways and talk about trait syntax for a minute. Precisely because composition of traits is the main way we define complex behavior around types in Rust, the syntax is a bit less verbose than what you see for interfaces in languages like Java or C Sharp. And as we discussed last time, the underlying details of how traits work is also quite a bit different. But speaking of syntax specifically, instead of something like an implements keyword, we can simply include the name of the trait bounds we specify on a given generic immediately after that generic. So if we are generic over a type T, which implements the add trait, we just spell that T colon add. We can also use the where clause to do this. You can think of where clauses as a way of spreading things out a little bit so that your type signatures, especially for complicated functions, don't make your eyes explode. And that is a real danger. 
where clauses let you define generic trait bounds distinctly from declaring the generics themselves. So you might define a generic type T in your function definition. And at the end of the function definition, after the arguments, but before the curly brace, which opens the function body, you would include where T colon add if you wanted to say that the type needed to implement the add trait. This isn't a big deal where you only have one argument with one trait applied, but it becomes quite useful if you have multiple arguments which have to conform to certain and especially differing trait constraints. So for example, if you had generic types T, U, and V, and T had to implement add and clone, and U and V both had to implement clone and send so that they were thread safe and ordering and so on, you would have a really difficult to read function signature without the where clause. But by having the where clause, you can put those on separate lines after the main body of the function and see the normal function definition with its normal types and then the constraints on those types distinctly, much easier to read. Now, what about the syntax for defining a new trait? Well, it's about as you expect. You simply write trait, followed by the name of the trait, and then the usual curly braces to mark off the body of the trait. One special case. If the body of the trait is empty, it's what we call a marker trait. You can use these to say this type can be used in a specific context when that context doesn't require functions to be implemented. The Rust book gives the example of the send trait for this. Send indicates that it is safe to send a given type between two threads. And that doesn't require a function, but it does require you to make sure that the type is memory safe in certain ways. Of course, as powerful as all these tools are, Rust's traits can't do everything. And specifically, as of today, you can't implement the same trait in a more specific way if it makes sense for your given type if there's already a concrete implementation in place. This is a pretty serious blocker for some kinds of optimizations, and fixing it would lay the groundwork not only for those optimizations, but also for a rustic approach to inheritance, which would be a nice addition to the language, even if we still think composition is better than inheritance in most cases. The details are pretty hairy, so I won't get into them here, but I will link the RFC talking about implementation specialization, as well as a helpful blog post by the author of that RFC in the show notes. That way you can take a look if you're interested in some of those language design issues, and what their ramifications might be for you as a developer in Rust. A little teaser for the future? You can actually act on what are called trait objects, where you provide a reference to the name of a trait as shorthand for a reference to some object which implements that trait. For example, you can return references to a trait object from a function, and when you do this, you end up with runtime resolution rather than compile time resolution as to what item you're returning from that function, but you know that it implements that trait, so you're still getting your safety guarantees. In other words, you get dynamic dispatch, but still in a strongly typed and safe fashion. We'll leave aside those details for now, too, but it's helpful to know it's out there. If you see a function returning a boxed-up trait, you'll know what you're seeing. There's also an open RFC to act on trait objects in general, which will further expand the utility of traits and improve the power of generic programming in Rust in some neat ways. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Next time, we're going to talk about something rather different from what we've been on in the last few weeks. Macros. And that might sound familiar if you've spent a lot of time in C or C++, 
But as we'll see next time, the details of Rust's macro system will actually be pretty unfamiliar to you coming from those languages. Macros are cool, and there's a lot of neat stuff we can do with them. Thanks to Hamza Sheikh and Chris Palmer for sponsoring the show this month. You can check out the list of other sponsors in the show notes. And I just want to say to all my sponsors, you're amazing. I really appreciate your support as I make this show. And so does my wife. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up recurring donations at patreon.com slash neurastation, or you can give a one-off donation at Venmo, Dwalla, or cash.me. You can find links to those, as well as to the various RFCs and blog posts I mentioned, in the show notes at neurastation.com. They also include fairly detailed code samples for the things we talked about today. In addition, you can follow the show on Twitter, at New Rust Station, or you can follow me there, at Chris Kreitcho. If you like the show, you'd make my week by rating it on iTunes, recommending it in another podcast directory, tweeting about it, or just telling a friend. Thanks to everyone who's added corrections and fixed typos in the show notes. Your pull requests are great. Also, I love hearing from you. Definitely say hi on social media. Add your thoughts in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum at users.rustlang.org or shoot me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up returning. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up returning, 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 returning donations.